Let me give you an example of Socrates in action, at least as portrayed by Plato. So picture this. Socrates is an old man by now, probably around 70, 71, and he's just been charged of the capital crime of impiety and corrupting the youth. There were no lawyers in ancient Greece, even though it was quite a litigious society. A defendant had to make a case for himself before a jury of his peers, who would then vote on guilt or innocence, and juries could be extremely large, hundreds of people. We know that Socrates had a jury of 501. It was always an odd number so that there wouldn't be a tie. They would then vote on the penalty if the accused had been voted guilty. That was what lay in store for Socrates. But we're picturing Socrates sometime before this. He's standing outside on the portico of one of the official buildings of Athens, waiting to have a meeting with the magistrate who is going to decide whether the case against Socrates is strong enough to merit a formal trial. While waiting, he runs into a young man named Euthyphro, who is bringing a case against his father, charging his father uh, with murder. And the case is kind of murky, although Euthyphro doesn't seem to think so. Euthyphro is an extremely confident young man. He's a priest, and he's very certain of his opinions. You're just the man I need, says Socrates. You may have heard I've been accused of impiety. And you know, I may well be guilty since I'm not even sure what piety is. Can you help me out here? Can you tell me what piety is? You've come to the right man, says Euthyphro. I know exactly what piety is. It's doing just the kind of thing I'm doing right now, just the kind of thing I always do in my official role as a priest. That's no help to me, says Socrates. I don't want you to give me examples, but rather you must give me a definition, a standard by which I can judge whether these are examples or not. This kind of mistake that Euthyphro is making here, giving examples instead of a standard, is one that is very, very common in Socratic dialogues, with Socrates always objecting to example giving. Well, there's a lot of back and forth, and finally, Socrates gets this out of Euthyphro. Piety is doing what the gods love you to do. This answer is an improvement on just giving examples, but Socrates has a question for Euthyphro. Do the gods love your doing certain actions because they're the right actions? Or is it the gods loving these actions that make them the right actions? If it's the former, reason Socrates, then those actions are just right in themselves, and one ought to do them. And whether the gods love them or not is beside the point. The gods love them because they're right. Figure out what it is that the gods love. But if it's the latter, if it's nothing but the gods loving certain actions for no independent reason, no reason at all, then how does that really make those actions right? It's just an arbitrary whim on their part and doesn't clarify our notion of rightness in the least. This argument, which is still known as the Euthyphro argument or the Euthyphro dilemma, can easily be translated into monotheistic terms. Does God love morally right actions such as being charitable towards the most vulnerable among us because these actions are morally right? Or are these actions morally right for no other reason than that God loves them? Neither alternative leads 
to a clarification of morality. That was what Socrates was arguing. In the first claim, there is an independent reason that constitutes the morality of these actions and is in virtue of that reason that God loves them, making God's love beside the point in explicating morality. Whatever the reason is that commends these actions to God's approval ought to commend our own approval. And it is incumbent on us to discover that reason, which is, of course, what moral philosophy, the normative part of philosophy, is all about. The other alternative makes morality completely arbitrary. God just happens to love our being charitable toward the most vulnerable among us. There's no reason at all to explain this love of his, to justify it. He might just as well have loved the opposite are doing all that we could to sadistically torment the defenseless among us, regarding them as a bunch of losers. This second alternative renders the whole concept of morality, of morally right actions, vacuous. It means that when we say God loves what is good, what we're really saying is God loves what God loves. It's just a repeat of the first mistake that Euthyphro had made the mistake that people always make when Socrates asks them to explain the essence of some universal. And the first response is just by giving examples without offering some standard by which we can judge whether these truly are examples. How are we able to know whether acting charitably towards the most defenseless, the starving orphans, the innocently jailed, rather than treating them tormentingly for being the defenseless creatures that they are, is an example of goodness, unless we have some concept of what makes actions right that provides us a standard. The upshot of the Euthyphro argument put forth so many centuries ago is to demonstrate that the questions of morality are independent of questions of theology. Naturalism is the ontological view, that is the view of reality, that rejects supernatural beings. It argues that we don't need to posit the supernatural in order to explain the things we have to explain. One of the major motivations for rejecting naturalism, that is for claiming that we really do need the ontological category of the supernatural, is to explain morality. Socrates, as we know, wasn't interested in general in those questions as to the nature of reality, but he was a naturalist as far as the question of human right and wrong was concerned, the only question that seemed to have interested him. His argument whether it was his or Plato's, we really don't know, is still employed by naturalist philosophers into our own day. It lies tacitly behind the work of moral philosophy, which just goes to show that Socratic aporia isn't purely negative. Sometimes you need to reach a dead end in order to realize that you've been on the wrong road all along.